Now let's turn in our Bibles again this evening to the book of Proverbs, uh, where we've been reflecting these Sunday evenings for a number of weeks. And uh, this evening, I'd be glad to know we actually come to an end of Proverbs chapter 1, and you'll find the passage, if you're using one of the church Bibles, begins on page 635 and then goes on to page 636. So, Proverbs chapter 1, and for those of you who may be visitors, if our members will be patient with me, uh, the, the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament uh, is divided into a number of sections. The first section contains what look like a series of guidelines for fathers in instructing their children. And that is the first nine chapters. And then you come to the section of Proverbs that most people are actually more familiar with, which is not just a random collection of sayings, but many sayings, statements, insights um, that sound like what we would call Proverbs. An apple a day keeps the doctor away. A stitch in time saves nine. And these proverbs are, I think, intended to capture our imagination because they're full of pictures. And they capture our imagination in order to touch our affections and emotions, and especially to give us, as it were, an experience of a reality that we may never ourselves have encountered so that it will be fixed in our minds. So that when we when we do encounter it, uh, when you notice that uh, there is a thread loose, you will remember that a stitch in time saves nine. And you can sense how, um, I'm sure it's not altogether true, in fact, I doubt it's true that a picture is worth a thousand words. Sometimes a thousand words are worth ten thousand pictures, but there is part of the way in which we function in which pictures fix things in our minds and in our emotions. And that combination is essential uh, to living the life of faith, not just that we've got the smarts up here. Some of the smartest students I've had have not turned out to be the smartest ministers in the Christian church. Uh, So, there is such a thing as emotional intelligence, and not everybody has it, but the Proverbs are full of emotional intelligence. And in, um, in this first nine chapters, uh, the father is giving his son a, a number of talks, now, son, time for you and I to have a talk, about various aspects of living a life centered in God and for the glory of God, But in the passage tonight, and then in chapters 8 and 9, it seems, at first glance, out of the blue, it's not the father who is speaking to encourage his son to be wise, but wisdom begins to speak. And you'll notice that here in chapter 1 and verse 20. Wisdom cries aloud in the street, in the markets, she raises her voice, 
At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing? And fools hate knowledge. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my Spirit to you. I will make my words known to you, because I have called, and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand, and no one has heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel, and would have none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel, and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way, and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Little time ago, I had an email. Well, actually, it was a text on my phone uh, from a friend. He was traveling on a train, and he sent me one of those texts that make you feel, I wish I had been there with him, because the text said, the girl opposite me in the train is reading your book, Devoted to God. And I must say, I've always wanted to be on a train or a bus or a plane or in a cafe, even in Starbucks, where the person sitting opposite me has been reading one of my books, so I could say, are you enjoying the book? (laughs) And then when they looked up as though to say, so why are you in my face? I could say. (laughs) I wrote it. And if that happened to us, in reverse, if that happened to us, you're reading a book and suddenly the author himself or herself appears, it would have all kinds of memorable impacts on you. Like you would never forget the page you were reading when it happened. The book would mean something special to you. And I think, I think that captures the emotion, the context of what's happening here in the book of Proverbs. From one point of view, there's no reason whatsoever that the father who is urging his son to be wise and to learn wisdom from God should interject this soliloquy of wisdom, except to convey the sense that wisdom herself, and you'll notice that in this passage, wisdom is a she. 
that wisdom herself has stepped onto the stage as though, as though the Father were saying, you know, it's important for you to listen to my words. But here, the wisdom of God is speaking to you. And the whole purpose here is to impress upon us both the privilege that we have when we read the Scriptures. This is the Word of God. As Hebrews tells us, this is our Heavenly Father addressing us through the words of this Heavenly Father in the Old Testament, who is teaching this earthly Father to teach His children. And now the very wisdom of God is speaking, and uh, there's a little sense that goes with this, that it's one thing to listen to your Father when He speaks, but when, when wisdom speaks. The interesting thing is, the word wisdom here is in the plural. It's rightly translated in the singular, but it's actually the plural of the word wisdom. And I suspect that's because the Father is wanting to convey to His Son, uh, what I'm telling you is wisdom. A bit like Jesus, verily, verily, I say to you. Truly, truly, I say to you. Well, everything He says is true. But there are some things He underlines. He didn't have a red-letter version of the Gospels. He didn't have italic script. He didn't have underlining. He didn't have block capitals. And so he says, while everything I say is true, there are some true things I say that are absolutely fundamental, that get to the heart of the matter, and you need to pay a special attention to them. And that, I think, is what is happening here as wisdom steps onto the stage and begins this soliloquy before the Father then goes on in the next chapters to give His own little talks to His Son. And the passage proceeds like a, like a three-movement symphony, um, and each little a movement in the symphony begins with a, a call that goes out. Uh, you'll see that, obviously, in verse 20, wisdom cries. There is this call that goes out. And then uh, later on in verse 24, uh, because I have called. You see, and there's this movement that goes on in the call that goes out. And then, eventually, the call that comes from those who have rejected wisdom, and the consequences of that call going, as it were, unanswered, or answered in a way that is altogether unfavorable. So, first of all, wisdom begins with a gracious invitation. It calls out to the crowds, cries aloud in the street. And what is being emphasized here is that wisdom is needed, God's wisdom is needed for every conceivable situation in life, and God makes it available to you for every situation in life. It's needed in every situation in life, and thank God it's available to us in every situation in life. And he puts this in picture terms. Wisdom cries out in the streets where you, 
where you live, where you just go about your ordinary life. Wisdom cries out in the marketplace, where, where you engage in commerce. And wisdom also cries out at the city gates, which, of course, in the Old Testament is the place where the city is governed. Uh, the man who sits at the city gates is one of the elders of the community responsible for guarding and governing the community. And so, wisdom is saying, wisdom is needed in every single area of life. It doesn't matter who you are, what you do. It doesn't matter how low you are or how high you are. It doesn't matter which part of the town you live in doesn't matter whether you have a position or no position at all. You need wisdom if you're going to live for God's glory. And the good news is that wisdom is calling out to you. Wisdom is issuing an invitation to you to come. And the invitation is obviously an urgent one. Um, that's the whole point of this section. The Father is saying, you know, what I say to you is really important, but God's wisdom itself is calling to you. And that means your need for wisdom is urgent, and you need to listen. Please listen. Hear wisdom's call. Now, why is, why is that call so urgent? Well, the reason that's given in this passage is because of our native human condition. Our native human condition is that we are alienated from God and His wisdom, that we prefer our own wisdom. Indeed, as the New Testament says, that we count God's wisdom to be folly. And you'll notice that uh, wisdom categorizes those responses in three different ways. The, the call goes out, first of all, you notice, to those who are described as the simple ones. In verse 22, how long, O oh, simple ones, will you love being simple? Now, who are these simple ones? Uh, the, 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 the simple ones are, are, are the ones who just kind of float through life without having any real anchor, without anything in their lives really striking them as being very important. Now, of course, there is a good simplicity, but, but there's also a, a simplicity of somebody who has no focus, no purpose, whose life is kind of meaningless, and even that it's meaningless is meaningless to them. And the real tragedy is that they're actually quite happy that way. That's, that's, what he, that's what wisdom is saying. I'm calling out to you if that's your condition, because only when you find the wisdom of God are you going to be saved from, from the triviality of life, which means if you don't have an anchor, you'll be blown around with the next wind that comes through town. So, now you're a Dundee United supporter, and now you're a Rangers supporter, or now you're interested in that, but that bored you, and now you're interested in this, and you're, you're flotsam and jetsam on the sea of history. You're all these pieces of plastic 
on the ocean, and your life has no significance. And you'll only find significance when you come and receive my wisdom. So there's, a, there's, a, there's such a thing as being superficial and wanting to stay that way. Not, not wanting to be serious about anything. And it's actually, it's kind of endemic in our society. Okay. The, 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 to go from one pleasure to another that stimulates you but doesn't last. It's also superficial. And then there's, there's another category, and, and there really is, these are real categories. There are those he describes as scoffers. How long will scoffers delight in scoffing? And, and he's not just thinking about scoffing in general. He's not thinking about scoffing Dundee United, okay? He's particularly thinking about, about scoffing God. Why do people scoff God? Because it's their, in their own eyes, it's their chief means of self-defense against Him. Because what do you do when you scoff? You lower, you minimize the other person. You raise yourself above them. And why do you do that? It is to defend yourself. I mean, isn't it, isn't it one of the, the characteristic marks of a sense of insecurity that in order to, to boister your own security, you seek to undermine other people's security? And, and so you scoff. You, you scoff religion. It's not just that you think, you know, nothing. It's that you it's that you scoff it, and uh, wisdom is saying you need to come because you desperately need to be delivered from that, because wisdom is going on to say because ultimately it will destroy you. Isn't that the truth? Here is, here is some young, frail Christian, and someone comes along and scoffs at their faith, seeks to destroy their faith by scoffing and doesn't realize that all they're actually doing at the end of the day is destroying themselves. If only they could see the shape of the soul they're creating within themselves, how it's become shrunken and shriveled. And then all of this, simpletons and then scoffers, it's as though now this comes into its full-blown version in another category that uh, wisdom describes in the book of Proverbs frequently describes as fools. What is it that makes a fool a fool? It is, notice the language that's used, it's that they hate knowledge. Now, he's not speaking about uh, scientific knowledge or historical knowledge or philosophical knowledge. He's speaking about the knowledge of God. That's the, that, as it were, is the that's the terminus point of the simpleton who becomes the scoffer. Uh, he, he or she ends up actually, actually hating God. And, and of course, um, they're wise in their own eyes. They're always wise in their own eyes. And if you say to them, incidentally, uh, uh, you hate God, 
they will become angry. But they do. How do we, at the end of the day, how do we know that they do? For this simple reason. When you love somebody, you care passionately about what will please them. What pleases God is His Son. So if you care about God, if you love God, the passion of your life will be the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that is not the passion of your life, indeed if you have an antipathy to that or even indifference to that, then that's hating him. And so you see, uh, wisdom, wisdom is wisdom because wisdom sees into the soul and sees these soul shapes, the, the soul shape that is flat because it's superficial, the soul shape that is, is just kind of full of, uh, full of snide comments about the Lord, the soul that is, as it were, a restless sea of hatred. And wisdom is coming like an evangelist and, and pleading with those it discovers in these conditions to, to come and turn. And you'll notice how that's the case. How long, how long, how long you'll be like this? Oh, turn. When I show you who you are, which is a reproof to you, when I reveal to you the real shape of your soul, oh, turn, turn to me. You've been, you've been going away from me, running away from me, being indifferent to me. Oh, turn, that your life may be transformed. That's the message. And uh, you know these people. You, you, you know, you may be at high school these people are in your class at high school or at university. These people are in your class at university. They may even be teaching you at university. Where you work, the hospital where you work, eh? the business where you work, the people with whom you have to do. You see these people every single day. And wisdom is calling out here to them, eh? Just as Jesus called out, actually, right at the beginning of his ministry, like his first message is, you need to repent and turn to me, because that is the only way to life. And I want you to notice this, that that word, repent, is rooted in the singularly wonderful graciousness of wisdom. Isn't that interesting? Just like our confession of faith, chapter 15 says that all true repentance is anchored in the prospect of receiving the mercy of God. And you see it here in wisdom's turn. If you turn at my reproof, verse 23, I will pour out my spirit upon you. And I will make my words known to you. 
You see what wisdom is saying? Turn to me and I'll make you, I'll really make you part of my community. And the spirit of wisdom will come upon you. And people will wonder, where, where did this wisdom come from? So, so this, is not a, this is not a summons that is, is saying, pull yourself up, be better. This is a summons that says, if you will just turn to me, then I will pour out upon you everything that is necessary to transform your life and enable you to live for the glory of God. So it's, it's a passage that begins with a gracious invitation. But you'll notice in the second place, as the, as the first movement comes to an end, and as it were, the second movement begins to emerge from it, it's an invitation that meets with a stubborn rejection. Wisdom calls, but wisdom is rejected. Verse 23 had described the blessings of returning, of repenting. Behold, I'll pour out my spirit to you. I'll make my words known to you. And then verse 24, another call. Because I have called and you refused to listen. Stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you've ignored all my counsel and would have None of my reproof. Then I also will laugh at your calamity. Old Testament poetry, and this is in many ways poetry, works in a different way from, from at least the way English poetry used to work. You know, English poetry used to work that the word at the end of the line would rhyme with the word at the end of the next line. Of course, that's uh, no longer true. But there is a way in which Old Testament poetry works. It moves along by the second line, either uh, saying the same thing in different ways or adding to what's in the first line or even highlighting the first line by a contrast in the second line. And uh, if you read through the Psalms, you'll see that often. If you read through the Proverbs, you'll, you will see that often. And it's very interesting to notice the flow at this point. I called and you refused to listen. Stretched out my hand, but you refused to heed. And you have ignored my counsel. Now, you might think that, you know, wouldn't it be the right way around to say, first of all, you ignored my counsel, and then you refused my counsel. You see the logic of that. You, you ignore it, and then you refuse it. Except that spiritually, it works the other way. It's when you refuse the counsel of the Lord that your heart begins to be hardened, and then you begin to ignore it. Paul speaks about this in Ephesians 4, uh, verse, well, in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, when he says that the, the result of our uh, alienation from God is that our hearts become calloused. He actually uses that term, our hearts become calloused. You know what that's like. You, you, know, you, pick out, you take a pin and you, you stick it into a finger and... 
But then if you do something, you know, if you work with your hands enough, eventually that finger becomes, the, the skin becomes hard, and you can take the same pin and stick it in, and you'll not feel, you'll not feel anything at all. And that's how things happen spiritually. That's how they always happen spiritually. That's why there's an urgency in this sermon of wisdom. Because wisdom realizes that, yeah, you, you, at first you will, you will have a, you'll, you'll resist. And, and there's a, there's a struggle. And you, you feel, you feel the pinpricks of the truth of God in your soul, but as you refuse those pinpricks in, in that friction between yourself and God, uh, it creates a, it creates callous, and you become callous towards God. And so, for example, it used to be that you couldn't sit in church without feeling your conscience pricked, but the great thing now is you can sit in church and you might as well be watching Shakespeare's Hamlet because it's all, it's all a matter of indifference to you, absolutely a matter of indifference. And the tragedy of the situation is that you've come to regard that as success. And wisdom is saying that is the ultimate spiritual disaster. It was a blessing to you when you heard God speaking to you through His Word, and you went, ouch, that's me. He's found me. He knows me. He's calling me. But now when you can, you can sit and listen and go out, that Christian used to really irritate you, but you resisted. You resisted what they stood for. You resisted anything they said about Jesus. You were angry about it. You're not angry anymore. They don't upset you. They don't trouble you. And the tragedy is that you don't see you're the one who's the loser. You're not the victor. You're the one who has developed calluses all over your soul. And if you could see your soul, your soul would be covered in calluses, ugly calluses. It's a very striking thing that Paul says, isn't it? And so this is what happens when there is a stubborn rejection of wisdom. It looks as though eventually, and this, you know, this is the real tragedy of the situation, it looks to me as though eventually I managed to conquer those, those, those feelings that my conscience was being pricked, but now I'm master of the situation. And uh, the truth of the matter is that you're out there in the unfeeling darkness. It's a great Welsh evangelist by the name of John Elias, who used to use this illustration. Uh, this is, we're talking uh, 18th century. And he tells how one day he went down to the blacksmiths who was chewing a, a horse, the anvil, the fire, bang, bang, the noise. And the blacksmith had just got a new dog. And the, the blacksmiths are going, bang, and they're going, hey! Bang, ha, bang, ha. 
And then he went away on one of his evangelistic journeys and came back a few weeks later, needed to go to the blacksmith again. And the blacksmith was going, bang, bang, bang. And the dog was going. And that's how it is, doesn't it? That's the, in a way, that is the, the glorious thing about your life being placed under the wisdom of God in his word is that the light may dawn. And the dangerous thing is that actually you can't ever sit under God's word and uh, remain unchanged. Either your heart being softened or the, the calluses, you see, and the, the deafness, hardness of heart. And people can say really serious things to you spiritually. And it's like water off a duck's back. And that leads wisdom to a kind of concluding application. There's this wonderful invitation. And then there's this terrible rejection. And then the passage ends with a kind of concluding application because now wisdom is saying, don't you realize what the, what the end of this journey you're on is if you reject my wisdom? It is that someday you will find yourself crying out, oh God, and you'll realize you've reached out And he's not in your life to hang on to because you rejected him. And, you know, you just need to think about what people say to realize that's what actually happens. Where was God when I really needed him? And what wisdom is saying is you don't seem to understand reality. The real question is where were you? when God was inviting you. You told him to go away. And especially when it actually concerns to wisdom, here's a situation in which I've despised the wisdom of God all my life, and here's a situation in which I desperately need wisdom. Oh, my friends, wisdom doesn't come out of a slot machine. It's, It's not like that. You don't know God by snapping your fingers and saying, God, now I want to know you and I'm going to know you. You don't. It's, it's a relationship with him, you see. And uh, here wisdom is issuing a really serious warning. And you'll notice that this warning has a, an unnerving justice about it. It's, it's a big word today, isn't it? Justice. It wasn't such a big word when I was young, but it's a big word today. That's what we need, justice. Justice. And that's what wisdom is saying. You said you wanted justice, and that's what you're getting. You scoffed, and you're being scoffed. You refused. You're being refused. Do you know what the fool says at this point? How dare God do that to me? Who does he think he is? And the truth of the matter is he thinks he's God. And he is God. 
and you never thought he was God. Indeed, you despised the idea that he was God. So this is a really serious word that comes, but it also illustrates the the perfection of the justice, doesn't it? That the there's a balance here. Those who refuse, what would be the appropriate justice? It would be that they would be refused. And you can see actually what this is, what this is, what this, what this is shaped to do in my life if I really take it on board, if my folly if my foolishness, my superficiality, if, if I become serious, what will this statement do to me? It will make me come and say, oh, have mercy upon me. You see? Not give me justice. That's what I want from God, justice. No, you remember Portia in Merchant of Venice? They still teach that in high school. When Shylock is demanding his pound of flesh as justice, and she says, remember this, that in the way of justice, none of us would see salvation. We do plead for mercy. And that's always the case. It's always the case in the warnings of Scripture that they're meant to bring us to a spiritual reality that makes us cry out to God for mercy. And you see, the marvelous thing about this, you know, otherwise you would just read the book of Proverbs, a series of kind of moralistic comments. Don't do good and bad things will happen to you. But we need to understand there's something undergirds this. I'm a big David Suchet fan. I've watched every single Poirot that he has done. Uh, just in a moment of self-confession. <laughs> and there, there's one of them, uh, the, the title of which eludes me, which doesn't help you to go and watch it because there are scores of them. There's one of them in which there is an unidentified murder victim. And, and Poirot is there with the, the of course, the semi-dumb uh, inspector from Scotland Yard or wherever. And Poirot says about this, murdered person, the question is not who he is, but who he is. And they're all going, and Poirot goes out, and the poor inspector, of course, is left in the days when amateur sleuths reigned. The question is not who he is, but who he is. Well, let me... Let me steal Poirot's idea and put it like this. In terms of how we read the Scriptures, this is so helpful to us. The secret is not what's in the text. The secret is what's in the text. Now, what on earth do I mean by that? I mean that this doesn't, these statements don't come to us out of the blue in the Bible or out of the darkness. These words are spoken to God's covenant community. 
And in everything you read in the Old Testament from Genesis 3, 15 onwards, especially through the Exodus onwards, there is this, in the text, there's something that may not be said in the text. And what's in the text is that God always operates in His relationships with us in a covenant way in which He calls us to faith and to obedience. And as we respond to His covenant promises in faith and obedience, we find ourselves walking in the way of His blessing. But as we respond to His promises of grace in terms of unbelief and disobedience, then we find ourselves walking away from His blessing and into a world of cursing. Remember how Deuteronomy 30 puts it? Moses says, as he's expounded the law of God, he says, listen, today I have set before you life and death. Therefore, choose life. And that's what's underneath these verses as this passage comes to an end. The simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But he says, for those who turn, whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. He's saying, turn. She's saying, turn. Wisdom is saying, turn. The Lord is saying, turn. Turn from the way of death and self-destruction. I set before you life and death, so turn away from the way of death and destruction. And you will find, verse 33, safety and life. Now, if you know the New Testament quite well, um, you actually may not have been able to hear much of this sermon because your mind will have been exploding with the connections that there are between what's being said here and what's said in the New Testament. Like Jesus saying in John's gospel, if you turn to me, then I will so pour out my Spirit upon you that you will experience rivers of living water flowing into your soul. Of Jesus saying, come to me, you who are weary with yourself and heavy laden with your efforts to to live a life that will provide satisfaction, come to me. And he says virtually what's said here in the very last verse. You'll dwell secure. You'll be at ease without dread or disaster. Come to me, and I will give you rest. And so if it's true that underneath the text, underneath the text and therefore in the text, but not stated in so many words, is God's wonderful covenant promises in the Old Testament. Then, as it were, in the fullness of the text, uh, who is standing in front of us? It's Jesus himself. You remember how Paul calls Jesus the wisdom of God, the one in whom are to be found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, the wisdom of God and the power of God, the one who is made for us, wisdom from God. 
And so what in uh, the story of the book of Proverbs is an invitation to respond in repentance and faith to the call of God's covenant wisdom is at the same time pointing us forwards to the ultimate expression of this in our Savior Jesus Christ as he calls us to himself. And you'll remember how Jesus said the same serious things. You remember how he told the parable of the, the wise and the foolish virgins. You remember how he ended his sermon on the mount by contrasting the wise and the foolish. The foolish man built his house on the sand, and when the storms came, it was all gone. The wise man built his house on the rock, and when the storms came, he was safe and secure. And it's such a wonderful mixture of these two things that that people who are not Christians, I think, can never put together, and that is the intense seriousness of the love of God for us. He loves us so much. He is serious about us. And the call for us in response to be serious in trusting Him and entering into this blessing. So wisdom calls, and it's time to answer. Christ, who gave his life for us on the cross and rose again to be our Savior and Lord, calls, and it's time to respond. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the wisdom that you have shown to us in the pages of Scripture. We feel we have so little of it. And whenever we read it, we feel that we simply are scratching at the edges of it because you are the infinitely wise God. But we thank you that you are wise enough to know us in our foolishness and often in our simple-mindedness. You care for us even in our indifference. And we pray that you would awaken us to a new seriousness, that we may trust your Son and follow him. We pray this in his name.